At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. At first glance, it would seem that there could be no two more different poets writing in English than Walt Whitman and Oscar Wilde. But given a closer look, they may have been more similar than we might think at first glance. Walt Whitman's New York was the burgeoning seafaring merchant culture of Brooklyn and Manhattan of the 1850s pre-Civil War. The New York that Oscar Wilde first met when he stepped off a ship in 1882 was a city in the throes of the Gilded Age, full of a level of wealth that seemingly appeared overnight, and with an increasing idea that anyone could do anything as long as they had a large purse and a large personality. In our last episode, part one of Whitman and Wilde, we took a look at how Walt Whitman and New York met each other at a particularly opportune time for both a young, ambitious poet seeking fame, and a city and a country ready to be reflected and represented by new language and new verse. This episode moves the story forward and focuses on a similar moment and another poet who was to become one of the greatest writers in English and a city that was not only ready to receive him, but to promote not only his work, but his personality. The fact that Walt Whitman and Oscar Wilde did in fact not only meet each other, but exchanged philosophies of art and fame illustrates how by the Gilded Age at the end of the 19th century, America was able to create the very modern idea of celebrity that we see in our media today. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks we journey into corners light and dark for a look at America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. The ship on which Oscar Wilde sailed from England docked in New York Harbor on January 2nd, 1882. Unable to clear quarantine until the next day, Oscar's first night in New York was spent aboard ship. What lay before him in the twinkling lights across the bay was a city filled with anticipation for his arrival. He was a virtually unknown Irish poet who had been making the rounds in London social circles, but had only one volume of poetry to his actual writing credit. Wilde was the subject of an intense PR campaign that foreshadowed his arrival. 
New York certainly had had British and European celebrities grace its dinner tables and ballrooms before. The superstar Jenny Lind in the very early 1850s and Charles Dickens twice, most recently in 1867. But Wilde was different. He hadn't really done anything. Yet New York was falling all over itself to meet him and entertain him in their overstuffed drawing rooms. The New York that greeted Wilde was completely different from the London he left. Tall buildings were everywhere and packed streets. Everyone seems to be on their way to meet a train, is the way he described it. New York society had been engaged in a project to find itself, which resulted at its very pinnacle in a made-up elite trying to mirror a British aristocracy. And they were ready to fall on their knees at any British accent or whiff of a title or noble connection. One of the great mythological moments that's often told of Wilde's arrival in New York was his statement at Customs. When asked what he had to declare, he is imagined to have said, I have nothing to declare but my genius. Made-up story, as that seems to be, it nonetheless illustrates a point. It seems that it was perhaps his genius that was what he had in fact for sale. Wilde was to learn that he could use the city to propel his career. It's been written his great lesson from his time in New York was that New York, the great symbol of commercialization at all costs, was a place where more than just selling his work, he could sell himself. And the public, no matter how much they knew of him or thought of him, would line up to buy. My guest today knows the life and work of Oscar Wilde as very few do, and I am deeply honored to have him join me on the show. John Cooper is a historian and independent scholar who has spent over 30 years in the study of Wilde. He is the researcher, author, and designer of the extraordinary website, archive, and blog, Oscar Wilde in America. He is a long-standing member of London's Oscar Wilde Society and a founding member of the Oscar Wilde Society in America. John lectures and writes extensively on the life of Wilde, and his work has appeared in Os Scholars and The Wildian. In 2012, he made the unique discovery of a lost essay of Wilde's, The Philosophy of Dress, which forms the centerpiece of his book, Wilde on Dress, published in 2013. John, I am so deeply honored to have you join me on The Gilded Gentleman today for our show on Wild. It's my pleasure to be here. Now, there are so many, many aspects of Wild's life and work that we could discuss, but today we're really going to focus on the first time that Wild set foot in America in January of 1882 for his lecture tour. And of course, his meeting with Walt Whitman. So I always like to begin a little bit before the events that will lead us into the center of the show. So I'd like to talk a little bit about before Wilde's arrival in America. So he's 27 years old. He's had a brilliant career at Trinity and at Oxford. He's really only published a slim volume of poetry, and but yet he was starting to circulate and really circulating brilliantly, we could say, I suppose, in some London circles. But John, just who was Oscar Wilde 
at this point. Yes, and I think you've made the point somewhere that Wilde was uh, like the prototype of his mother, in effect, um, because I think I like to begin with Wilde before America, right at the start. Um, Oscar was very much his mother's son, even similar in build, like him. She, you know, he was uh, six feet tall, but similarly poetically and in nature, similarly striving to be the centre of attention. One can imagine the young Oscar at Lady Wilde's at-homes, afternoon gatherings of artists and literary people emulating her style. And she styled herself as Speranza, the Italian word for, that means hope. And the hope was, I think, that uh, people would believe she was descended from Dante, when in fact she wasn't. So you can see how uh, she knew the value of artifice and perception. And these were traits that Oscar uh, inherited. And you can see the future Oscar in her when she wrote at a young age of her rebellious nature, uh, when she said, I should like to rage through life. This orthodox creeping is too tame for me. And young Oscar must have been her in microcosm. And he remained close to her all his life. It's significant that the only time Constance, his wife, uh, visited Oscar in prison was to break to him the news of his mother's death. So, John, were there any other influences on Oscar's life aside from his mother? She seemed so theatrical, of course. <laughs> yes, she was. And, of course, it was into the theatre that Wilde was destined. Wilde was an individualist. But like most of us, he was an amalgam of his education and his experience. The term genius is often bandied about about people like Wilde. But I think at 27, I don't believe he was a fully formed original. He had a lot of influences. Um, he saw much in the art and the writings of the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, painters and poets such as Rossetti and Byrne Jones, whom he particularly liked. And in the aesthetic movement, he saw his true nature reflected in a love of art and beauty. And perhaps more significantly, at Oxford, he came under the tutelage of John Ruskin and Walter Pater. Now, Pater, whose book studies in the history of the Renaissance, while said was the most important book he'd ever read, the very flower of decadence. Pater preached always to burn with a gem-like flame and said that failure was to form habits so that Wilde learned from him to seek new sensations. And he certainly did, right? <laughs> In, indeed, yeah. He made that uh, one of his dictums throughout his life. And, and Ruskin, on the other hand, the great art critic of the 19th century, whom Wilde regarded as the father of this English Renaissance in art that he was about to uh, make the subject of his lectures. Wilde adopted much of Ruskin's teachings. In fact, adopted, maybe too mild a term for it. Um, shameless borrowings, perhaps, better describes it. But Wilde did depart from Ruskin eventually. He'd come to see art as purely ethical, whereas Ruskin was bogged down in morals. And it's a good example of how Wilde built upon what he'd picked up. So, late in 1881, this idea of a tour to America is proposed to Oscar. So can you talk about how this tour came about and what sort of lay behind all of this? I think that's a very interesting setup and an interesting moment for him. Yes. Yeah, so there's a very happy coming together of transatlantic forces. In England, Oscar had written a book of verse and so was beginning to be talked about as a person of wit and opinion. And his friends, including Sarah Bernhardt, suggested he might find an audience. Lecturing in America was a good idea, not just because other authors like Dickens before him had set the standard. Currently, 
there were some inartistic fellows such as Archibald Forbes, who was a Scottish war correspondent, making good money on the circuit. Oscar must have thought he could outshine him. And what happened was that Wilde's lawyer friend, uh, George Lewis, approached Richard Doyle Cart in search of a promoter. Uh, this move was uh, extremely well-timed because Doyle Cart, who was the impresario who had staged the comic operas of Gilbert and Sullivan, and their latest opera was called Patience, which was uh, a parody of the aesthetic movement to which Wilde paradoxically belonged. And although it was uh, doing quite well in New York, um, the new operetta, and it was about to be taken across the country. And Doyle Cart wanted the public to know what the skit was all about. What he really needed, I suppose, was a poster boy. So a cable was sent to Wilde, floating the idea. And Wilde replied, yes, if offer good. Well, the offer was good. Wilde was to get half of the receipts, plus his expenses. So one of the things I'm curious about is, uh, in my reading... I'm curious about how Richard Doyle Cart prepared the American media and American audiences for Oscar's arrival. And I understand he created a brochure, a pamphlet that was sent on ahead, sort of. I like to think of it as maybe media's first press kit. Can you talk a little bit about this? Was it an accurate portrayal? What? How did it portray Oscar? Well, Cart, or rather through his U.S. manager, a retired army colonel called uh, Colonel Morse, W.F. Morse, set about promoting Wild in America arranging for Oscar to attend the opera, having his photographs taken, dressing him up like the leading character in Patience, Reginald Bunthorne, and arranged interviews for him, notified the press. Court even stipulated that Wilde should mention Patience in his lectures and dress in his aesthetic costume. Court told Wilde, perhaps a little guiltily, that you must not mind my using a little bunkum in pushing you in America. Well, Oscar succumbed to all of it. I mean, he did have a genuine desire to spread his artistic vision across America. But he knew there was a price of celebrity that he was willing to pay. And, you know, he, he best summed this up himself when he saw his name printed in primary colours, God forbid, six feet high. Uh, he was galled, of course, but said, still, it is fame, and anything is better than virtuous obscurity. So the venture was um, well orchestrated to tie Oscar ever closer to the role of Bunthorne in Patience, the idea... The idea being, I suppose, that people would come to gawk at Oscar and thus be encouraged to come and see patients and be all the more amused. Now, I was fascinated by how excited the American press was to meet him. In fact, he couldn't get off his ship right away. He had to wait overnight. And actually, there were some members of the press that actually rode out across New York Harbor to meet him on the ship. They were so excited. Mm -hmm. Why was the press so passionate and anxious to meet Oscar Wilde? Well, quite simply, they saw him as fodder for good copy. And they'd been stirred up by Wilde's agents, of course. Um, Colonel Morse was joined by um, Helen Lenoir, who was a Scottish businesswoman, uh, started in the Doyle Cart agency as a, a secretary and later became Doyle Cart's wife. So she became quite influential in running the company. And those two together were working with great enthusiasm to stimulate interest in Oscar. You mentioned that pamphlet um, that they sent out to all the New York papers. It gave an account of Wilde's academic achievements of this young English poet, despite the fact that uh, he was Irish. And um, his literary successes, despite the fact, as you say, he only had one book of self-published poems, and so on. It was all a little bit fulsome. 
The pamphlet even admitted that Wilde had exaggerated ideas which they put down to his youthful enthusiasm. So they were promoting Wilde in a backhanded way, effectively setting him up for the press to knock him off his pedestal. So it's little wonder the press were eager to see him. And as you say, they rode out to see him on the boat as it lay uh, in New York Harbour in quarantine overnight. Now, what was the first impression that Wilde gave the press? What did they see when they saw him? Well, Oscar was ready for them. He leaned against the rail of the ship, talking to the reporters in a manner that one journalist described as uh, the attitude of someone who had better things to be doing. Uh, So they naturally asked him about aestheticism that he tried to answer in their own terms and about his plans and about his opinions. He told them with mock seriousness that he was disappointed in the Atlantic Ocean. It was apparently a still crossing for Wilde and uh, he had poetic visions about the majesty of the mighty ocean. Unfortunately, Oscar, with his bare face and his irony, all of this went over the bewhiskered heads of the Victorian press. And so Wilde's remark about the Atlantic went viral. Comic verses were written about it. It was widely mocked uh, and word even reached Britain where there was a letter printed in the uh, Pall Mall Gazette expressing disappointment in Oscar Wilde and it was signed by the Atlantic Ocean. So the press thought they had a fair idea of who they were going to see in New York but which Oscar Wilde did they see? How much of the real Oscar was in the pose? This is, in fact, still a vexed question in critical studies. I mean, on the one hand, Oscar had a genuine innocence, which he maintained throughout his life, a sensitivity to art and beauty against all the slings and arrows that were thrown at him. But in America in 1882, he adopted the costume and fulfilled the contract. He knew he was playing a role because at the end of the year, he cut his long hair and abandoned the knee breeches. He'd had enough of the aesthetic pose, I suppose. He didn't think it right to have short trousers and long hair. So he adopted short hair and long trousers and promptly announced that the Oscar of the first period was now dead. Now, I'd like to go back to this concept of aestheticism, which you've mentioned. And this was a new thought in the Mm -hmm. appreciation of art in Britain at the end of the 19th century. For listeners that may not be familiar with what aestheticism is or was, can you talk a little bit about that and clarify that? It's the love of beauty. It meant that beauty could exist independently of other factors, the mantra being art for art's sake. But it's a very mobile term. You see, the aesthetic community was never in committee. It was what one made of it. For Oscar, it would probably go back to the romantic poets, particularly Keats, and then the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood I mentioned, whose work resonated with his sense of drama, of classical settings, and the poetry of Charles Baudelaire in France and Swinburne, in England, all rather stylized and beautifully decadent. And while also took uh, to the designs of William Morris's prints and wallpapers and had a close relationship with the women of the Rational Dress Association that his wife was later involved with. This was an organization that argued against the strictures of dress for women, such as tight lacing, and generally against the fashions of Charles Worth in Paris. Too many frills and furbelows for Oscar. Indeed, Wilde later devoted an entire lecture to the subject of aesthetics in dress. So do you think it's accurate then to say that Wilde really was an embodiment of aestheticism? Well, he didn't invent the aesthetic movement, but he did allow it to invent him for, for a few years. 
and and that again is the dichotomy of Wilde. You don't know how much was him and how much was artifice. But I, I do believe, as I said earlier, he did have a genuine sense of all this. It was really something he went to prison for. So one cannot question Wilde's belief in the aesthetic nature he had. So I'm very curious to take a look for a few minutes at what his experience was in New York after he arrived. It seems we talked a little bit about the press, but he was really caught up by society. They were very anxious to entertain him. He did a round of dinner parties and receptions and all this sort of thing. He was already sort of becoming a kind of celebrity, it seems. Can you talk a little bit about what his reception was socially once he got here in New York? What did New York society think of him? And what did he think of them? Well, a key word for Oscar operating in society is charming. If people and situations were charming, then he thought well of it. And mostly, especially in the larger cities, this is how he was treated. And for his part, Wilde's intention was to be charming himself. He was extremely well-mannered and polite and a brilliant conversationalist and storyteller. But it wasn't only in high society that Wilde mixed. Uh, wherever he went, he sought out local artists and art institutions. For instance, in New York, he met members of what was uh, known as the Tile Club, so-called because of their pursuit of painting decorative ceramic tiles, like the ones that surround fireplaces. The Tile Club in New York was a, an elusive collective of about 30 New York writers, artists and architects of that period. And they met for about 10 years, between 1877 and 1887, usually on Wednesday evenings in their various studios. And while I was invited along to meet them, alumni included uh, Merritt Chase or Edwin Abbey, Stanford White, Augustus St. Gordon's, John Twatchman, people like that. So how was this world of New York that he was encountering, how was this different from the London that he left? Well, at that point in his life, Oscar had not quite made it in Britain. He was starting to become known, but he was not yet a fixture in fashionable society. Well, not if a prerequisite was to be a man of income and property in London, which was something he rectified when he got married a couple of years later. But for now, he was mixing with writers and painters, some of them like himself, struggling to earn a living. So you can see that with his reception in the Gilded Age of New York, which was probably the most affluent society in the world at the time, Oscar would have thought he'd arrived. But it would have been different from London because he was now the centre of attention instead of being just an invited guest. And not just the centre of attention in New York. You can imagine how this was a recurring sensation. He was guest of honour everywhere he went. His arrival was anticipated in over 100 towns and cities across America and Canada. And at each one, he stayed at the best hotels and was hosted by the best society, all of whom were anxious to show him off. It must have been an exhilarating year for him. And, well, his natural growth to self-importance must certainly have blossomed. Now, am I correct that when he first came to New York, the tour was relatively small, and as his success became known, the tour increased, increased, and it was well over a year in the end. Am I correct about that? Not over a year. Um, he was originally signed up for, well, it was mooted for him to do 50 lectures. During the year of 1881, that was what was talked about. They decided to change that a little. It's not quite sure exactly how many lectures he had in mind when he arrived. Certainly, the major conurbations on the uh, eastern seaboard. But yes, you're quite right. He did prove to be a success, or at least a big draw, at least a, a figure in the press to for some be, people to come and see, who most people came to uh, to look at him rather than to hear him 
it has to be admitted. But yeah, the, the, the tour was extended. He was uh, in and around the East Coast, went across the country via Chicago, where he lectured uh, using Chicago as a hub, all the way across to the West Coast, two tours to Canada and into the South. It extended as it went on. He took a respite in the summer when he um, did a little bit more lecturing at the, the spa towns. But after that, maybe around September, October time, he decided to wind down. He had had enough of it and possibly that was a reciprocal feeling from his American audience. Uh, he stayed on in America for the rest of the year, though, to welcome Lily Langtree here and lived in apartments in New York. He spent most of his time in New York, one or two more lectures and left on December 29th after having arrived on January the 2nd. So almost an entire year. Now, I want to spend a few minutes talking about, I think, one of the most significant things that Wilde did while he mm -hmm. was here in New York, and that was to have a series of photographs taken oh, yeah. of him mm -hmm. by Napoleon Cerrone in the studio of Napoleon Cerrone at Union Square. These images are extraordinary for a number of reasons. So, John, can you talk a little bit about, first of all, who Napoleon Cerrone was and what this meant for Oscar to have his photograph taken by Cerrone and what's important and significant about these images. Right. Well, Cerrone, or Cerrone was an emigre who lived in Canada, probably the leading portrait photographer of his day. Um, he had worked in Britain, in fact, with his um, brother and brought back a lot of techniques to America where he set up a studio. But you're quite right. Um, these photographs were extremely important. And I think not only at the time, but in retrospect. So let's look at those two aspects of them. At the time, the photographs were used for publicity and for sale across America. So Oscar garnered a lot of revenue from them. In fact, this is how he was paid in kind for the image. And he had several dozen prints made for his personal use as well, to hand out to friends and signed copies. You see that Wilde was on the cusp of a new mania for photography. Historically, Matthew Brady's daguerreotypes of patriots and heroes were giving way to the theatricality of photographers like Saroni and their silver prints, which were more readily available. You could say that the public were becoming less awestruck and a little increasingly stage-struck by images of popular figures at that time, such as Sarah Bernhardt or Edwin Booth, Mark Twain. In Oscar, Saroni recognised the most picturesque candidate yet to emerge from this cradle of celebrity culture. In fact, I think he said, a most picturesque subject indeed. And uh, Oscar's photo opportunity had arrived. So, um, all very important at the time, but I, I look at it in retrospect a little bit. The Sarony photographs present the most lasting image we have of Oscar Wilde. There are many pictures of him later in life, but the photographs of 1882, when he was just 27 years old, are the ones we usually see adorning book covers or posters at exhibitions. And there are almost 30 of them, 28, is that correct? In yeah. a variety of poses? <laughs> yeah, right. well, I've identified, I think it's now 31, uh, in various forms. Um, and there were two sessions of Sarony photographs of Wilde in 1882, and there are three more known from when Wilde visited America again, with Shorter Her in 1883. What I find so fascinating about that, and, and Whitman did a very similar thing, again, with photography, but also the lithograph that he used when he first published Leaves of Grass. It was a way to start manipulating, and I use that word on purpose, manipulating perception with imagery. And this was a whole new thing, right? Exactly. Yeah, well, I would have seen that photograph, or lithograph it was, of uh, Whitman in Leaves of Grass. 
The similarities have been drawn with that. In that pose, uh, Whitman has his hand on his hip. And in many pictures, Wilde did the same thing, to some extent establishing the image we have of the effete man. But I've looked at, closely at that, and I see in Whitman, he has his fist jammed into his hip, whereas Wilde is a lot more limp-wristed. So it's, uh, it's not quite the same conjunction. But true to say that they both had this idea that imagery was important to them. So, John, why do you particularly think that series of images is important? Well, it's an interesting question. I believe it's because they project Oscar with his long hair posing in his aesthetic costume in a way that we like to think of him today, when in fact he only looked like that for a year or so. Um, It's an impression that reflects a modern vision of him as a free spirit when he had the youth that he eulogised in Dorian Gray, when his downfall was still in the distance. And also his costume in these pictures, unlike his later mature ones, is not stereotypically Victorian. In fact, he would still look flamboyant and unconventional today. And if they are anti-Victorian, I can't help thinking that these photographs allow Wilde somehow to outlive the Victorian morality that condemned him. Is there a particular photograph or two from that series that you like? Well, the number one, of course, is an iconic headshot. I think I like them all. You should visit the website that that shows all the photographs in order. I think the one I like the most is a new one that's that's been recently discovered in the um, Harry Ransom collection at the University of Texas, Austin. It's so new to the series that I've had to call it 3A because it wasn't recognised until very recently as another picture of Oscar Wilde. So I'd advise people listening to this to look out for Oscar's picture number 3A because I like that one. So Wilde gave his first American lecture January 9th, 1882, here in New York at Chickering Hall. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry that building no longer exists, but it does not. (laughs) But I'm curious about a number of things about the first lecture. What were the stakes in that first lecture? It seems like there was an awful lot of writing on that. So can you talk a little bit about that and what we would have seen if we were in the audience that night? Yeah. Um, For the record, Chickering Hall was on the corner of 18th Street and Fifth Avenue, magnificent concert theatre. You would have seen a packed audience, the best people in town, carriages lined up outside and stretching around the corner. Inside, the glitterati were assembled. There was a simple stage, just a side table, a glass of water and Wilde's manuscript. But Wilde would have been in full costume in his knee breeches and uh, patent leather shoes with bows on them his Byronic collar, cravat, diamond pin. And he was introduced by his uh, manager, Colonel Morse, and proceeded to conduct his lecture. The lecture proved to be too theoretical for some people, and he had a monotonous delivery, a sort of a monotone that some commentators complained about. I mean, as the tour progressed, he adapted his subjects and um, to more domestic and localised themes. Um, His manager recalled how he talked best during the summer tours at the resort hotels, where he mainly lectured to ladies about dress and house decoration. But um, I think his success as he went along was more for him as a person rather than his lecturing. So to some extent, his lecturing was secondary to his presence as a personality. So how was he received? What happened at the end of the lecture that he gave that night? Well, he was received, as one might expect, politely, even with reverence in some quarters. 
and he was taken to a reception in his honour and dined and uh, met, met the people of New York society. Now, his lecture was entitled The English Renaissance, but it really wasn't about that, was it? Not necessarily. That wasn't a concept that actually existed. It was probably something he made up on the boat on the way over. I think Cort was told him to write the write the lecture, but he, he I don't think he quite finished it. And instead of checking into his hotel, he took rooms, I think it was on 28th Street, where he could have some privacy to actually finish the lecture. It was a rather grandiose idea. Everyone knows of the Italian Renaissance. And Wilde, in putting himself forward as the leader of this art movement in America, restyled what he was doing as the English Renaissance in art. But it was far too theoretical, far too uh, much drawn on Ruskin, far too much uh, drawn on his, his learning rather than his original ideas. But Wilde did have original ideas. He just took, would take time to develop them. Now... I'm very curious. I'd really like you to clarify and demystify something here. There, He was so popular here in New York. There are stories that he actually had someone copying his autograph that would be sent out when people asked it, or someone clipping their hair when people asked for locks of his hair. Is any of that true? What is the real story of that? That probably, well, it's certainly true that Wilde did have a valet who was writing autographs for him. There's no question about that. But the the idea of a secretary writing autographs for people is quite a well-known phenomenon in American autograph collecting. And many presidential uh, autographs are really just copies in this way. Wilde did uh, write, that you, I think, that idea of the secretary cutting off locks of their hair. What comes from a letter Wilde wrote saying that he had a secretary whose job it was to cut off locks of their own hair and send them to people and was gradually becoming bold as a result. So So maybe we need to be a little mistrustful of any locks that surface that claim to be his from that period. Is that true? Apart from the genuine imitations. So with that, John and I are going to take a very brief break, but we'll be back to continue the story. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the U! Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and I'm with historian and Oscar Wilde expert John Cooper to take a look at Mr. Wilde in New York. 
So, John, before we move on to other aspects of, of Wilde's time in, in America, I'd really could you talk a little bit about the result of the lecture in terms of his public perception and the tour? Yeah, it was a grand beginning, um, which he repeated to sell out audiences in other large cities such as Chicago and Boston, San Francisco. The public perception of him was mixed, not in person because he was privately liked, but in the public domain, uh, which was mainly determined by newspapers. Some were supportive, some respectfully interested, but most were generally dismissive. And the ridicule never really let up until he fell out of favour later in the year, when his touring slowed down. While famously said, in the old days, we had the rack. Now we have the press. He was not wrong about that, Rachel. <laughs> well, <laughs> we sort of see that today. Well, there is one press story about Wilde that, that's interesting. He had a run-in with them later in the year at a press dinner given in, in the honour of Charles Wyndham, at which he was invited to speak. And after being coughed down by the audience for his remarks that their ink-stained scribblings you know, were annoying to him, um, he ended by saying, whatever is false will vanish, whatever is permanent will remain, and I am patient, and I can wait. I suppose he had the last word because not many of those who criticised and ridiculed him that year are remembered today, and here we are talking about Oscar Wilde. So his next stop after New York was Philadelphia, and I certainly would like to talk about the meeting with Walt Whitman that came during that particular period. Can you, John, share a little bit about how this meeting with Whitman was like other meetings he had, other encounters with celebrities he had. Can you put it in context a little bit for listeners? Yes, you're right. When he travelled to Philadelphia, he had expressed a wish to uh, meet Walt Whitman and his uh, colleague in Philadelphia, J.M. Stoddard, who was a publisher there, had some connections with Whitman and he helped set up a meeting for him. But you're right to look at, it, look at this meeting in perspective. Because Wilde's visit with Whitman was not the everyday meeting he had with many people he met. You see, in a shallow sort of way, and this is part of his being the prototype of the modern celebrity, Wilde wanted to associate himself with anyone famous. And we can see that he didn't let any sympathies stand in the way of that. Uh, a good example is that he may have been the only visitor to America that year who stayed at the homes of both General Grant and his polar opposite, uh, Jefferson Davis, the leader of the... Uh, Confederate states. But with Whitman it was different. Um, he was someone for whom Wilde had a genuine admiration. Indeed, he was a little gushing about him. His claim that his mother had read Whitman's poems to him as an infant, or I think from the cradle, as he may have also put it, um, was unlikely. Lady Wilde did purchase a copy of Whitman's poems though, which was a selection from Leaves of Grass, when Oscar would have been in his teens. So he was familiar with him and he certainly read him in college as well. So John, when Wilde met Whitman, what was he looking for? I believe it was a, a sincere and treasured meeting with the good great poet. Perhaps an experience, perhaps as a memory, perhaps to understand the man. Of course, they both had a penchant for manly verse, you might say. And from the few accounts that we have of uh, the main subject of their talk was poetry, so perhaps that was exploited, but we don't know. So how do you think this meeting went and what was particularly important about it for Oscar? Oh, yeah, the meeting did prove important to Wilde. He continued to talk about Whitman in letters and in many interviews, saying how Whitman was the grandest, most Greek of men. The meeting itself went extremely well. Uh, we have reports from both of them uh, saying how they took a liking to each other. 
What was also important to Wilde, and it may have been a surprise to him as well, was how media savvy Whitman was. Uh, Whitman knew all about the power of imagery and the value of self-promotion. He even had newspaper clippings about himself on the walls. Of course, Wilde knew about self-promotion himself, but even he must have learned something from Whitman. Doesn't his uh, Leaves of Grass begin with the words, I celebrate myself? And I like to think of the meeting as a sort of mirror in which each man saw the other, perhaps as the younger or older version of himself. So, John, are there any examples of things that Oscar learned from Whitman that he then took into other parts of his life? Yeah, there is a conjunction that emerges. Uh, it's a story of how Whitman had used a letter of Emerson uh, that Emerson sent to him, and he used it as an appendix to an edition of Leaves of Grass, sort of a self-promoting way of getting somebody else to congratulate him on the book. Well, after Wilde left Whitman, um, he returned to uh, Philadelphia, where he did a similar act of self-congratulation. He was helping an English friend publish a book. It's called Rose Leaf and Apple Leaf, um, which had been published in England, uh, that Wilde was trying to get published for him in America. But before it was printed, Oscar, presumptuously, inserted a new dedication and now rededicated the book to himself. So, John, few people actually realize that Walt Whitman and Oscar Wilde met again a second time. Can you talk about that? Yeah, as early as uh, March that year, just six weeks after they had met for the first time, and while Wilde was in Chicago, he wrote a letter to Whitman, a very flattering one, seeking another meeting. And on his way back from the West Coast, he wrote to his manager, trying to establish Whitman's whereabouts. I was fortunate enough to discover many years ago how we know about that second meeting. We learn of it from uh, a Charles Godfrey Leland, who wrote in his journal after meeting Wilde in Philadelphia that Oscar had just returned from, as he put it, an hour at the feet of Whitman. So then the second meeting uh, did take place in May of that year. But other than that, we know hardly anything about it. There's been some speculation uh, about the outcome of that second meeting. Some saying that Oscar left with a, a greater appreciation of Whitman's attitude towards uh, same-sex attraction. Sources are a little vague, but be perhaps because of the resurgence of interest in this Wilde and Whitman meeting, I'm currently researching this topic again. But there's one more thing that perhaps I should say for the record, and that is there is a famous quotation attributed to Wilde about that meeting. Many years later, after Wilde had died, in fact, a friend of his, George Ives, wrote in his voluminous uh, diaries uh, something that Wilde had allegedly once told him. So this is hearsay, but Wilde is reported to have said to Ives that he still had the kiss of Walt Whitman on his lip. It may just have been a metaphorical kiss, or if it's true, Wilde probably offered it to Ives in support of Ives' cause because Ives was operating a secret society of gay activism in the 1890s and beyond. So this kiss of Walt Whitman is a nice sentiment, but not too much should be read into it, I don't think. Whitman often made greetings and farewells with young men with an embrace and a kiss. So after Philadelphia, Wilde really then embarks on his very long US tour. So I'm curious to know what the tour did for his image in the U.S., but also I'm really interested to know what happened to his image once he got back to England. Well, I'm going to have to disappoint you here with a short answer, um, because his image didn't change. It was just magnified, more ridicule in the press. But he was more of a celebrity. 
But England would have to wait because he spent the next few months in France uh, spending his money and writing his plays. Now, John, you have said in your writing that after his tour, he became famous for more than just being famous. What did you mean by that? Oh, I was referencing in a sort of inverse way what the Polish actress Helen Majeska had wondered about how Wilde had gained a place in society after having done nothing. Well, apart from having charm and wit, I suppose. So what I meant was that after America, he had done something. Professionally, he nurtured the art of public speaking, conducted hundreds of press interviews, both of these for the first time, and creatively he became familiar with formulating his thoughts into thesis and socially he was gathering material and honing uh, his epigrams for use in his early essays or short stories. So he returned a much more accomplished figure and artist. Now, John, I'm not sure that all listeners will actually realize that the very first production of an Oscar Wilde play took place here in New York that following year in 1883. Can you talk about the play? What was the play? And what were the circumstances around its production? Well, most people know Wilde's plays from his mature uh, social satires of the 1890s, such as The Importance of Being Earnest and An Ideal Husband. But out of all of the thousands of productions of Wilde's plays in the last 140 years, and there's always at least one running somewhere in the world, it is surprising that the first one ever was staged here in America. Uh, This was 10 years before those great successes. Wilde essayed two early and unsuccessful plays. One was The Duchess of Padua, a Shakespearean effort in blank verse, uh, which is seldom performed. And the other was a fairly derivative thing too. It was uh, took took its uh, leanings from uh, Russian literature. Uh, It was called Vera, or Vera and the Nihilists, to give it its full title. Uh, It's a story of a peasant girl who joins a cadre of Russian revolutionaries intent on killing the fictitious Tsar Ivan. Well, the fact that the real Tsar Alexander II was assassinated himself in Russia just as Wilde was writing the thing didn't uh, help a great deal in getting it produced. Uh, Not in Britain, anyway, with its royal connections. Wilde thought he'd have better luck with it in a republic, I suppose, and he brought it with him to America. Uh, But he did find a promoter and an actress for it, and it eventually stays, as you say, in New York at the Union Square Theatre, another building no longer there. And Wilde did return a year year later, or in August of 1883, to oversee the production. Now, it could be said that Oscar Wilde and New York sort of met each other at the perfect time for both of them. New York society was certainly enthralled with anything British at the time. They certainly wanted to ally themselves with, with Britain as they developed their society. And Wilde was really ready to embark on his rise in celebrity. Do you think this was a particularly opportune moment for both New York and Wilde to meet each other? I would say so. Simplistically, he came across as the epitome of polite social ability, uh, the well-mannered, well-spoken and well-educated British stereotype. But he was smarter than that. He knew the mood of the nation after the Civil War. You know, he even told an audience in Washington now to try the motives of peace, not war. You see, Americans in the East had been following European development in art and literature and probably saw Wilde as their chance to embrace all of this in one time. He was seen as a leader of a movement, there to provide Americans with a a cultural belonging, perhaps, as a tastemaker for style. Whether he was or not is perhaps not the point, but he did have a lot of success in spreading an awareness 
of art and encouraging individuals into the realm of art. Indeed, after his visit, one journalist reported that the aesthetic revolution had been won, noting that art was now everywhere. Now, we could certainly say that Oscar Wilde was a deeply complex and layered personality. John, can you offer, in your opinion, a couple of what do you think are the biggest misconceptions about Oscar Wilde? Hmm. It is a difficult question. I've always thought that people are wrong when they think of Oscar as a gay martyr. Wilde lived in a binary age, not even that, uh, given the hegemony of men over women. And he emerged as a, a homosexual, as if that were an identifiable third sex. But Wilde had never heard that word in his life, and he might not even have appreciated it if he had. His mantra was that to define is to limit. So in not acknowledging labels, Wilde was ahead of his time in prefiguring what is now taking shape in gay theory in America today. The fact that homosexuality is simply too vague a term, that there's a broad spectrum of identity and attraction, and we're all somewhere on that colour wheel. So I don't believe Oscar was made for something as meaningless as martyrdom. His struggle was not self-sacrifice, it was self-serving. And as he said himself, to realise our own nature perfectly. That's what each of us is here for. John, in your writing, you note that you first found Wilde yourself in high school, but you had to wait more or less until you were ready to begin the journey uh, to fully understand or, or discover Oscar. What do you think is required to really understand Oscar Wilde? Is it a process? Well, in my case, it was. It was the need for the right disposition and surroundings. You see, for those like myself born in the 1950s, sort of before the Wild Enlightenment, finding Wilde for oneself meant dealing with the vestiges of fear and ignorance. I mean, any Wildian susceptibility that I had to nuance or delicacy of art required some daring in those days. A rapport with Wilde then had to emerge as a discovery from within. So there was this latency. I'm reminded of uh, what the painter William Rothenstein said about Wilde, um, that he'd never met anyone who made him so aware of what was latent inside him. And so that was my personal journey. As for finding Wilde at large, this deferred muse, however, is still evident. You see, unlike the immediacy of a personal transformation, the wider world had to wait for changes in the law and for a cultural shift before a critical mass could catch up to him. He eventually emerged, but it, it only came after an epic hangover, as I call it, that took almost a century to wear off. But thankfully, it's now easy, one might uh, dare to say, natural, for scholars to locate him in subjects as varied as queer theory, gothic fiction, gender issues. We now discern Wilde not as just a quotable wit, but as a thinker and a moralist, a man possessed of insight into the relationships of art and life. And so there's a parallel here. In my case, despite a disposition too long repressed, Wilde came to represent the possibilities that were latent in me, whereas at large, with a reputation too long suppressed, Wilde has now come to represent the possibilities latent in society. John, if you could sit down today with Oscar Wilde right here at the table where we're sitting... What would you want to ask him? And is there anything you would want him to ask you? Oh, dear. 
my first thought is I might not ask him anything because I couldn't be sure he would tell me the truth. I would have to guarantee that first. I mean, I would certainly want him to know how he is regarded today. He was one of those tragic figures like Van Gogh who died not knowing he would be celebrated and in Wilde's case, rehabilitated. However, I think you've already provided the question I would ask him. I think I would ask him, what is the biggest misconception we have about Oscar Wilde? And what would he say? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I would hope he would have a, an answer aligned with what I said. I mean, it, it is an interesting concept to discover Wilde's precise sexual orientation. It's not a prurient interest in a celebrity like that, particularly Wilde, because he was the midwife to modernity in that sense. He was the first pop star of a modern generation. And so to know him closely in that respect, I believe, is important. I might want to ask him if homosexuality wasn't illegal in his time, would he have married Constance? He certainly loved her and his children. But it's difficult to know, but it's frustrating to try to think of these things. And, well, as for what I would like him to ask me, well, first of all, I hope he wouldn't ask me why am I scrupulously assembling so much information about him when he didn't... Uh, care for facts. But on the whole, though, I think the question I would like him to ask me would be one quite easy to answer. I'd be happy to settle for the question, would you like to join me for dinner? And you would say yes. <laughs> Absolutely. John, I have been so deeply honored to have you join me here today. I hope you will come back and talk about some other aspects of Wild, it would be such an honor to have you back on the show. Sure, it would be my pleasure. There's always something. There's so many. Maybe a show on dress. We'll see. Okay. Thank you so much for being here, John. Thank you, Carl. And to my listeners, please make sure to visit John's extensive archival website and blog, Oscar Wilde in America. You will find extraordinary detail and a depth of information on Wilde and his time in America. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon. I invite listeners to join the Gilded Gentleman as patrons on Patreon.com. The support of my patrons is crucial to being able to continue to create and produce the show. Please visit Patreon.com slash The Gilded Gentleman. I couldn't do it without you. And I'll see you soon. And after all... What's life without a little glint of gold? Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.